and to join with you in worship this morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9 is where our first passage will come from this morning. I've been looking forward to being with you for quite some time. Uh, My son, one of my boys, lives out in West Texas, and he and his buddies from Florida College times take a a week-long golfing trip every year. And several times they've been at the Ross Trent, whatever that is, I'm not a golfer, place around here. And they have visited here. And when he heard that I was going to get to hold a meeting here, he said, Oh, Daddy, you're going to love that place. You're going to love those people. They're really nice, and and it's uh, very enjoyable to be around. And I would just want you to know I already see that and feel that and uh, have enjoyed being with you. I want you to to take your Bibles this morning. Appreciate the comments that were made before the Lord's Supper. I really like it when that's done to focus our minds. This morning we're going to be studying about the death of Jesus. And you need to have the impact of reading it yourself, not just hearing me say it. I want you to be able to go through the scriptures that we go through, to see it with your own eyes, and let those scriptures impact your understanding And yes, your feeling and your emotion for what Jesus has gone through to be able to provide us a way to be forgiven of our sins and a way for us to go to heaven. You need to understand God doing this for us. You need to understand God's uh, caring for us and just what He was willing to do in order to give us a chance to be saved, to provide salvation for us. In Jeremiah chapter 9, it says in verse 23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that I am the Lord... That he, excuse me, that he understandeth and knoweth me. If you're going to be glorying in anything, don't let it be that you got a good paycheck. Don't be that you got the big degree. Don't let it be that you're big enough to beat everybody up. If you're going to glory and be proud about something in the right way, let it be that you know God. Let it be that you understand the God who created this world. Let it be that you understand the God that is going to be the decider, the judge on the day of judgment. Let him glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight saith the Lord. Okay, so what do I need to understand about God? A lot of things. If you look over in John chapter 3 and verse 16, that passage that we see and hear all the time, everybody knows about John three sixteen, but there's a good reason because that's a very important verse. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
And it's a little difficult to explain, but the word so there, you know, we, sometimes we talk about, well, this is just, God just loved everybody so much. And that's true, but I've been told grammatically that's not really what this is talking about. Not so much how much God loves us, but the quality of God's love. That God's love was so pure and so right and so deep that it was the kind of love that would lead him to sacrifice his own son. In other words, it would be this is how God loves us. And when you look at the story of Jesus dying on the cross, you begin to grasp the real love that God has for us. In fact, look in 1 John chapter 3. And just as a note, if you remember John 3.16, remember 1 John 3.16 because they basically teach the same thing. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. He says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. Hereby perceive we. If you want to get a true perception a real understanding of the kind of love that God has for us as His creatures, as His creation, then look at this story. That's really what He's telling you. Look at this story. Look at the story about Him laying down His life for us. And the more you know about that, the more you see what Jesus went through, the more you see that information and know that story, the more you're going to understand the kind of love that God has for us, how He cares for us. And one more passage on that over in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, there in verse 8. Paul says, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the first part of that. God commends His love toward us. In other words, God's saying, like, here it is, right here. I, I want to show you my love. I commend it to you. Take a look, would you? Just take a look at it, and you will begin to get it. You will begin to understand my love for you if you'll just look at this story. And there's another element added here. It's not only that Christ died for us, but that He died for us while we were yet sinners. He died for people who were absolutely 100% unworthy of that kind of love. That's me, and let me kindly say that is you. And God says, take a look at that and begin to understand the God who is the creator of this world and how he feels about his creation. Before we get into we're going to, we're going to look at Jesus dying on the cross this morning. Just look at the story. But one other point that I want to make about that is that that Jesus did not have to do that for us. It was voluntary. Uh, I think sometimes, I know me growing up, sometimes I didn't really realize that. Now, Jesus was the Son of God, and He asked the Father, is there any way I can escape this? And said, God, God the Father said, nope, you've got to do it. Remember when Jesus said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
And, and it's like Jesus is just trying to get out of it. But God physically commanded him and made him do that. That's not really what that's about. Because if you notice, it says that in John three sixteen, God gave his son. That's voluntary. And in 1 John three sixteen, it says that Jesus laid down his life for us. That's voluntary. So what does it mean in Matthew 26? What's the idea when Jesus said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I'm just going to give you a suggestion for you to mull it over. That what Jesus wasn't saying, look, I don't want to save these people. I don't want to go through this and, 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 and save these people. I don't care about them. I just want out. That's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus is really asking the Father is, isn't there another way? Is, isn't there a way that we can save these people and, and I don't have to go through this for that to happen? But also his attitude was, but if the answer is no, if this is the way it has to be, to give people a chance to be saved, uh, not my will, but thine be done. You just think about that because he laid down his life. He did it voluntarily. And as we study through this, I want you to remember he did not have to do that for us. It was not because it was mandatory. It was not because he didn't have any choice. In fact, you remember he told, told the disciples, if, if, if I asked God right now, he would send down 12 legions and angels and they'd take me out of here and get me out of this. But he didn't call for the angels. He endured that suffering so we would have a chance to go to heaven. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, if you would. Isaiah chapter 53, a, a lot of times we hear this read before the Lord's Supper when we're remembering these events. And I want you to read with me verses 4 and 5. Isaiah chapter 3, 53, verses 4 and 5 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Okay? That's punishment. Punishment for sin. I can remember growing up as a young person and being baptized and taking the Lord's Supper. That the fruit of the vine was very easy to understand. I mean, if you bleed to death, you did that. You bled to death. You lose your life. The more you bleed, you lose your life. And that the blood carries oxygen to the rest of the body. And if you don't have the blood to do that, you're going to die very quickly after that. But for a long time, it was kind of hard to get the bread deal. You know, this bread is his body. What, what's the real idea behind that? Let me suggest to you this morning. As you read this passage in Isaiah, he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. How did he do that? 
What was my grief? My grief was my sin. My sorrow was my judgment that was coming. The fact that I needed to be paid back for my sins, which is punishment. He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Let me ask you, what part of Jesus was struck? Which part of Jesus was smitten? Which part of Jesus was afflicted? Verse 5 says he was wounded. What part of him was wounded? What part of him was bruised? What part of him received the stripes? Well, it was his body, wasn't it? Punishment was to be given and punishment was taken in his body. You see, we do things with our body. We live in our body and we do things with our body. And if I'm going to be physically hurt, it's just that. It is physically hurt. It is my body that absorbs that punishment. And bottom line, when we partake of the bread, we are remembering his body that received my beating. That received my punishment. I was the one who should have been beaten for my sins. I was the one who should have been bruised. I was the one who should have been bleeding. I was the one who should have had stripes on my body. But he took that in his body for me. And by his stripes, I am healed and you are healed. So let's look at the story. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 26, if you would. Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 55. Says in that same hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the prescriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Okay? The first thing that I want you to notice as we go through this is that he was abandoned. He was abandoned by his closest friends. They were afraid to even be close and maybe get caught up in what was going on with him. Have you ever lost a friend? Have you ever had a friend betray you before? You, you know how that feels. Jesus is going to go through a terrible experience. There's not going to be anybody to encourage him there. There's not going to be anybody to say, we're with you, hang in there. He's going to go through it alone. All his disciples forsook him and they fled. And it said in verse 57 that they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. It says in verse 58 that Peter followed afar off into the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. It has been too long ago that the end of that verse really popped out at me. Remember the story of Peter coming and he's watching what's going on. But it says that he came to see the end. Getting to the end 
of all these prophecies, the end of Jesus' life, the end of what he had been telling them. In verse 59, it says he's brought before the chief priest and the elders and all the council, and they sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Okay? They tried to find people to lie about him. To lie about Jesus and to tell good enough lies that the lies would stick. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me and a lot of people. The worst thing you can do is lie about me. Just don't lie about me. And and preaching, you kind of get to feel that a little bit more. Just don't lie about me. If you have truth and you can tell the truth about me and the truth is bad, well, you go ahead and do that. Just don't make up stuff. Don't lie about me. And and, and in our government from time to time, we see that kind of political stuff going on where people, they just ball-faced lie. In order to get what they want and to destroy somebody they want to be destroyed. And that is exactly what's going on here. They have decided Jesus is going to die. That's going to be the end of all this. But they have to cover it politically. So they go out and they they bring people in and they start, you know, what do you have against him? What do you have against him? And they can't even find people good enough to lie about him to where it would be justified in their own mind. But then it says in verse 60, They found yet none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. And at the last came two false witnesses, and they said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it that these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. Okay, now do you think Jesus could have explained his statement? Yes, he could have explained that. But he didn't. Because he knew where this was headed. And he was keeping quiet so that we would end up with what we need, which is a Savior. And Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast said, which in other words is, Yes, I am. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of God, Son of Man, sitting on the right hand of God with power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now you have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. Okay, so they finally twisted something around enough that they had it laid out where he is guilty of this and he needs to die for it. And so begins the death of Jesus. Okay? I'm going to get real detailed in this. And I want you to get detailed with me. And as we go through this, you remember everything they did to him is what we should have had. Verse 67 says, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him. 
And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? And so the mistreatment begins. And the first thing it says is that they spit in his face. Okay. That's about the most enraging thing you can do to somebody. Now, I grew up in Texas, and we've all got our John Wayne movie collections and everything over there. And there used to be some old westerns, and there'd be the innocent guy would be captured by the outlaws and everything. And I can remember a couple of movies where they were all tied up, and the bad guy would say to the good guy who's tied up, What do you think of that? And he he did the only thing he could do to show his contempt. He spit in his face. Of course, they killed him after that for doing that. But that was a great show of contempt. I can remember a few years ago in an NFL football game, there was one of the players that just went berserk on the field. And they couldn't stop him. He just went literally crazy. And when they found out why, what they found out was a player on the other team had spit in his face. And it was that enraging to him. Okay, here's what I want you to envision. The perfect Jesus. The perfect Son of God. Who had never done anything wrong. Who stood for everything right. And they spit in his face. They walked up to him and literally spit in his face. And then they played a game with Jesus. The game was, bam, somebody slaps him. And he kind of goes this way and it's like he's in a circle. Bam, somebody slaps him over here. And they're laughing about it. Somebody hit him and say, tell us who hit you that time while he's coming up. Somebody else hit you. Which one of us hit you that time? They slapped him around, we would say. Saying, prophesy unto us, who hit you? Funny games, huh? For the Son of God. Verse Chapter 27, verse 1, it says, And when morning was come... All the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Okay. Probably heard the Jews were not allowed to exercise capital punishment. They had to get the Romans in on it. They were the only ones that that were allowed to actually kill somebody as a criminal. So they send him to Pontius Pilate. And when you see when he went through the injustice of what he went through with Pilate, it's another thing. Pilate knew he was innocent. He has this idea in verse 15 that at that feast the governor wanted to release unto the people a prisoner, whoever they wanted. And they had them a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer and a thief. And it says, therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? Okay, Pilate is looking for a way out. And normally they would have gotten to cho- choose any prisoner. He doesn't give them that choice. He gives them a choice between Jesus and one of the worst prisoners that he has, Barabbas. Thinking, surely they're not going to ask for Barabbas. But what happens is that the Jews got to working on the crowd 
And they convinced the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released. It says in verse 18 that Pilate knew that for envy they had delivered him. In other words, Pilate knew there was no reason for this to be happening. Jesus had not done anything wrong. They, because they were jealous of Jesus, they were trying to get an innocent man killed. Verse 19, it says that Pilate talks to his wife and his wife even tells him in verse 19, have thou nothing to do with that just man? His wife tells him, I've had a dream. This guy, this man, Jesus, he is not guilty of anything. He is a just man, an innocent man. But verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Verse 21, the governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will you that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. He says, What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said unto him, Let him be crucified. You have a mob going on here. And the governor says, Why? What evil has Jesus done? What, what has Jesus done wrong? And they don't want to talk about what he's done wrong. They just answer, let him be crucified. And they shout Pilate down. It says in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made. He took water and he washed his hands before the multitude. And he said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. The judge says he hasn't done anything wrong. He's a just man. He's a righteous man. He is an innocent man. But you can go ahead and kill him. If that's what you want. Complete corruption leading to the death of Jesus. Okay. Okay. It says, then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and our children. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Don't skip over that verse, okay? When they had scourged Jesus, it's just like this passing statement of Jesus was scourged. And you need to stop right there and you need to hear scourging. Scourging was a tactic that the Romans used to try to get information out of people. It was a brutal, horrible, terrible experience to go through. What they would do is they would take the prisoner and they would strip their clothes off their back. They would lay them over something and stretch them out where they're extended and the back is open to whatever they're going to do. You had professional scourgers. Literally, scourger was a job in the Roman, Roman times. And what that scourger had was a whip that had a handle and it had several tails on it. Like, like some of you here, a cat of nine tails. It was not just one whip. There were several whips that came off the handle. And they would take bits of sharpened steel or iron, things that are sharp. And they would weave those things into the ends of those tails of that whip. And what a good professional scourger could do is take that whip 
and hit, hit the prisoner with a whip right at the end of it to where those sharp objects would dig into the meat in the skin of the prisoner. And then he would jerk it out and he would bring pieces of flesh off the person's back with the scourge. And they would hit the prisoner, whip the prisoner over and over and over again. And blood would flow. The person's back would be completely torn up. It would just be hamburger. And sometimes so much of the meat had been torn off the person's back that you could even see inside the inner cavity of their body before the scourger stopped. Listen, many people never survived the scourging. It was so bad. Now, if you were writing a chapter of your life and you had been scourged at some time in your life, don't you think it'd be like a whole chapter? Instead of just one line and when he had scourged him. We have to slow down and understand and imagine what he went through with that. And when he had scourged him, he delivered him to the Romans to be crucified. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and they put on him a scarlet robe. They're going to have a, a lot of fun with Jesus now. They're going to mock him and make fun of him. So they strip all his clothes off. And you know he says he's a king, so we're going to put a scarlet robe on him, the color of royalty. And it says in verse 29, And when they had platted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Okay, have you ever been stuck with a rosebush thorn? It hurts, doesn't it? you ever been stuck with a hypodermic needle? It hurts, doesn't it? It really, really stings. It's one of those that just makes you cringe. And it's not just big hurt. It stings. They took a crown of thorns. And they wound it around and around and around. And then they put it on his head. Do you think they just nicely, easily put it? No, they crammed it on his head. To where that the thorns dig into the skin and he's got a crown of thorns stuck to his head. And so you need to imagine the thorns pricking his skin, stinging. And blood coming out and, and rolling down his face. It says that they put that on his head, a crown. They put a reed in his right hand as a scepter. And they kneeled down before Jesus. And they began to mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30 says that they took the reed and they smote him with the reed. Eventually they get enough of making fun of him. They grab the reed out of his hand and they start beating him. And they start beating him. And they start beating him with the rod. The reed. And I want you to notice in verse 30, it says they spit on him, but it says a little, something a little different. It says in verse 30 that they spit upon him. So you envision now what's going on. When they talked about the spitting before, it says that they spit in his face. That's not what it says here. 
Before he was upright, it was before his scourging, before his beating, before all that he had already gone through. And he's standing up and they spit in his face to show their contempt. Now it says they spit on him. And what I'm going to say to you is very likely he's down on his knees or he's down on all fours. His body, his back is torn up and bleeding. He has blood running out of the crown of thorns with the sting and the bleeding. He's lost a lot of blood already. He's weak. And it's like now they, they're beating on top of him with a reed and they're spitting down on him. To again show their contempt. It says in verse 31, And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Okay, let me ask you this. You ever had a bandage on and the bandage was stuck to the scab? How did it feel when you ripped it off? Okay, you want to, we're going to be vivid with this because this is what he went through for us. If he could take it for us, we ought to at least know what he went through, right? He has had this robe on a beaten, bloody back for a while. And what I would say to you is by this time... It, it blood would have begun to clot and scab over. So the robe is stuck to his back that's been torn up. And it says here that they took the robe off of him. Do you think they very gently peeled it away? Or did they just rip it off of him? Pain upon pain upon pain. They put his own clothes back on him and, they, and, and led him away to crucify him. Verse 35 just says, and they crucified him. It's kind of like the scourging thing. It just says they crucified him. And you need to stop and think about what being crucified involved. Being crucified was typical and unique to the Roman government. And the way they would do that is they literally had two pieces of wood and they made a cross out of that. And generally they would take that cross and lay it on the ground and they would nail the prisoner to the cross. To where they would take his hands and set them out to the side and they would nail either through the palms of the hand or in between the bones in the wrist to the, to the cross. Then they would take usually their feet and they would double their feet up and nail through both feet to the cross. Can you imagine a railroad spike going through your hand? Lick after lick after lick as it tears through the hand. Can you imagine that having that driven through your feet as it slips through with each blow of the hammer? That's what he went through. Let me let you envision something else. The hole is dug. Now we've got him nailed to the cross. We raise him up, get it over to the edge of the hole, and we just push it off in the hole. Can you imagine how he must have felt when that cross hit the bottom of the hole? Agony, suffering. They crucified him. Crucifixion is a horrible way to die. After all the punishment that he's already gone through, 
He's bleeding. He's weak. They would say that usually people that were crucified died by suffocating. It was one of two ways. You either bled to death or you smothered to death. As you hang on the cross, again, he's bleeding. He's losing blood. What happens when you don't have enough blood is your blood pressure goes down and your heart rate goes up. Because the work of blood is to go through your body and carry oxygen to all the cells of your body. If you don't have enough blood to do that, you're not getting enough oxygen and your body becomes weaker and weaker and your heart begins to beat faster. It begins to beat faster to try to get what little blood there is around your body quicker to get the oxygen around. And because it's beating faster, it's actually less efficient. It's not giving the heart time to re, the heart time, time to refill in between beats. So really it's defeated, it's self-defeating. And what also happens is that a process called third spacing happens. And what that is, is because of the trauma, your blood vessels and your lymph vessels, which contain the fluid in your body where it's supposed to be. And the cells of your body, which all contain fluid where it's supposed to be, the trauma makes them porous. And they begin to release the fluids. That's why when the spear was stuck in the side of Jesus, blood and water came out. The thoracic cavity also begins to fill up, which is a a contained area where your heart and your lungs are. It begins to fill up with fluid. And as it fills up with fluid, there's no room for your lungs to expand for you to breathe. There's no room for your heart to to go back and forth as it's beating. And because of the positioning on the cross, what happens is that the person has to push up to get a breath. And they push up to get a breath. And as they bleed... And as more fluid gets where it's not supposed to be, the energy goes and the person dies. And it is a horrible, horrible way to die. In fact, in verse 50 it says that when Jesus had cried again with a loud voice, then he died. And I'm going to suggest to you that is the agony that the Son of God went through. And so what does it mean to us? Let me ask you, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? I will suggest to you that you should be profoundly humbled. That the Son of God would die for you. That He would go through this for you. I should be profoundly humbled that He even noticed that I was lost in the first place. And would die for me so that I could have a way to go to heaven. We should be ashamed. We should be ashamed that we did anything... That this would have to be done for us to get forgiven of it. I mean, like, really be sorry that we caused that for him. And we should be so grateful that he did do it. 
to give us a second chance. To give us a way to get it right and start over clear and clean with God and have a chance to go to heaven. So here's what we're about to do. We're going to sing that same song again. And the song is written from the standpoint of looking at Jesus dying on the cross. As you sing the words to that song, that's what we've been talking about. It's that that you're seeing as you look at Jesus dying on the cross. And if, if it's an imitation song. So if you're a Christian here this morning and you know you haven't been living right, I would guess you've probably been struggling with it for a while. I would guess for a while you've been knowing you're guilty. I would guess for a while you've been hoping you don't get caught like this. I don't mean caught and found out. I mean caught as in having to go before God with it. Hebrews 12 talks about Jesus enduring the shame of the cross. He was willing to publicly die for you. Are you willing to publicly get your life right for him? And maybe you've never obeyed the gospel. You haven't been baptized into Christ. What are you waiting for? Why would you not become a Christian? You want to know what the real response is to this? 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. And the Lord's watching. You know... He said, he that believes and is baptized should be saved. You know that he said to repent, be baptized for the remission of your sins. You know that. You've heard that who knows how many times. And the Lord's watching. And the question would be, are you going to waste what I did for you? Or will you just take it? Will you just let me get you to heaven? Jesus said, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's who it's going to save. If you want to go to heaven and we can help you get there, come and let us know. Well, together we stand and we'll always sing.